Space, the final frontier. Bridge to all decks. Welcome back aboard Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. And I can't believe that we're embarking on this new journey with the original cast, but they look kind of different. They look kind of different. The show is a lot shorter, but it's still very much is Star Trek. So I got to tell you, the animated series, I love the animated series. I've always loved the animated series ever since the early 70s. But how do you feel about just watching this first episode of the animated series, Beyond the Farthest Star, with this mindset that we brought to our deep dives of the original series? I'm so curious about it. I really am. I I really wonder what elements of sort of, you know, the continuity we've talked about and the character development we've talked about, I'm really wondering what elements are going to be further developed by the animated series or maybe contradicted by the animated series or I'm, I'm, I, cause I like the animated series too. I don't know that I love it, but I've, you know, when I rewatched it maybe 10 years ago, I went, Oh, there's some interesting things in here. Also some repetitive things in there that, that bother me. You know, obviously we'll talk about those, but I've never watched it with a critical eye. In fact, I've watched it with a far less critical eye than I watched the original series, which I obviously watched much more carefully. So I'm excited to find out where this journey ends up. I feel like this journey is going to be more of a revelation, perhaps, than even the original series was, because I've, I'm like you. I never really looked at the the animated series with a critical eye, but I have to say that when I was sitting through Beyond the Farthest Star and taking my notes like I did with all 80 of those original series episodes, I found myself saying to myself, this is really good. This feels like Star Trek, which was the goal that Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana had when they took on doing the animated series, which was just called Star Trek. It was not called Star Trek, the animated series. Mm. You know, that was added much, much later when you had all these other shows and you had to like, you know, make sure you've differentiated them, which is why the original show is now called Star Trek, the original series. And this was actually the last Star Trek uh, thing to just be known as Star Trek until Mm. the 2009 movie, the reboot, directed by J.J. Abrams. But I have to say that it may only be half as long as an original series episode, but there sure is a lot in Beyond the Farthest Star. Absolutely. Uh, Right? I mean, I really – like I got to a point – where maybe two-thirds of the way through the episode, where Kirk and Spock are doing what they did best. They are reasoning, they're reasoning their way through the situation, trying to put their heads together to figure out like how to come out of this. I felt like this this first episode has aged really, really well. And overall, I think, and I'm sure most people listening will agree that. The strength of the animated series is as such because it has the original actors, because it has so many of the writers and it's produced by Roddenberry and Fontana, story editor, associate producer, that the animated series really is the fourth season of Star Trek. What do you think of that? I 100% agree. 
I and and what's interesting too is it's like and this is just all I've watched is the first episode. So this is only based on what I saw in the first episode. Is while there are going to be budgetary and quality issues that we're going to discuss and there are the limitations of the way they did the animation and all that stuff. What I don't see is the writing weaknesses that we saw in season three of Star Trek. What (laughs) I see is that actually the writing has jumped back up again. And so I'm really excited that maybe, you know, you always said that, you know, you're kind of glad it didn't have a fourth season. And I I, I kind of tend to agree if it had gone in that direction of the end of the third. And I'm kind of now going, oh, so this is how they did have a fourth season that was better. That's actually kind of exciting. I, I agree with you. This this just just from watching this first episode, Beyond the Farthest Star, thinking about the the next episode, which is an absolute classic, that's yesteryear, and just thinking about other episodes of the animated series, I f- kind of felt myself saying the same thing. Like, if I was gonna compare the writing of the animated series to the second half of the third season of the original series, I might even say that the writing of the animated series is stronger. And I agree with you. I think I'm much happier with an animated series over the direction of what the original series could have gone for in the fourth season. So I will die on that hill saying that the original series was right to end at the end of the third season. And watching this first episode, I thought to myself, this is not a kid show, even though it aired on Saturday mornings. Uh, and during the first week of September of 1973, there was a press screening of Beyond the Farthest Star for the press. And the LA Times critic, Cecil Smith, was overheard saying, this is definitely not a kid's program. And that is one of the many strengths of Beyond the Farthest Star and the animated series in general. But Beyond the Farthest Star, as we all know, premiered seven years to the day that the Man Trap aired. So September 8th, 1973, Beyond the Farthest Star became the 80th episode of Star Trek to air on television. And although the episode's original air date was September 8th, its first broadcast in L.A., was delayed until December 22nd, 1973, because George Takei, who voices Sulu, was running for LA City Council. And there were issues with all of the the, uh, runners for LA City Council to have equal airtime. And I guess it was seen that this episode of the animated series would have given George Takei Mm more exposure, which was which was not seen fair. But uh, the re- episode was directed by Hal Sutherland, who directed all the episodes of the first season of the animated series. And it was written by Samuel A. Peoples, a name that is very familiar to Star Trek fans because he wrote the second pilot, Where No Man Has Gone Before, which was the pilot that sold Star Trek as a series. Peoples was the first of six ep- six writers from the original series to return for the animated series. And when Gene Roddenberry stepped down as the producer of the original series halfway through the first season, he offered the job to Samuel A. Peoples. Peoples turned it down to work on his own shows, the Westerns Custer and Lancer, but turning that down 
open the door for Gene Kuhn to come in and pick up the reins after Roddenberry stepped down. Now, Beyond the Father Star had its first draft on April 17th, 1973. The revised draft was May 10th, 1973. The production number for Beyond the Father Star was number 22004, which means it was the fourth episode of the animated series to be produced. So that begs the question. Mm. If we went in production order for the original series, why are we going in broadcast order for the animated series? Well, animation is different from live action. And even though the production number was the fourth for the animated series, the type of of production that goes into an animated series is much, much different, which is why we're going to be going in air date order for the animated series. I mean, they're really working working on multiple episodes at the same time with different crews. The whole system is really, really different. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it's just it's. It, by, and by the way, just I am astounded that the same guy directed all these episodes. I, that is just an, an incredible amount of work. And depending based on what I know about how animation is done today, you know, things are. You have storyboard artists that maybe would do one act, and you have a director overseeing each of those, and different directors on different shows that are all working concurrently. It's a really, really complicated endeavor. You know, absolutely, it is, and and, and also just, you know, when I was watching it and hearing the voices and and hearing some of the things that that especially Spock says, and we'll get into all this when we when we get into the deep dive. I'm going like, yep, they really stuck to their guns or their phasers, so to speak. And yeah. made an episode that feels like Star Trek. Yep. Would you like to know some of the things going on in the world at the time that this aired? And we're no longer doing it. the same thing. It's too hard to talk about when the production was because it goes over probably several months. So instead, we'll do the week up to when the show aired. So, so um, you're asking me about the first week, you know, leading up to September 8th, 1973. So now we are in the 70s, the early 70s. Yes. This is going to be interesting. Well, it's so funny because I had so much expectation sitting down to go, okay, like years have passed. It's going to be the most exciting news ever. And actually, I didn't find a lot of really interesting stuff. (laughs) So it wasn't that I even went back several weeks and kind of looked around. It's like, no, you know, the fall of 73, according to Wikipedia, there wasn't huge things going on. But the first one is on September 3rd. And this is just weird because I literally just watched um, Elvis, the Baz Luhrmann movie last week. And I saw that on September 3rd, Colonel Tom Parker quit Elvis after Elvis verbally insulted him. Uh, and I'm like, oh, is that? And because watching that, I, I don't know, we're not obviously not going to go into the Elvis movie. But watching that Elvis movie, I was like, oh, my God, this is a very different thing than what I didn't know a lot about this. And now I'm going, well, what's true and what's not true? And how much is the Baz Luhrmann version true? And now I kind of want to know. But according to Wikipedia, on September 3rd, Colonel Tom Parker quit Elvis, not the other way around. Oh, that's very interesting. Because in the movie, it makes it look like Elvis quit uh, Tom Parker. Right. And I don't know if that's referencing this this event at this time. Could be something different. Yeah. Could have been something different. And I also don't know, obviously, if Elvis watched Star Trek five days <laughs> later on Saturday morning, but I'm going to assume that he did. But you know um, who did watch Star Trek? Who? Boz Lerman. Oh, that's oh, that's interesting. I you know what? You know Star how Trek you know out? that? If you no. watch if you watch the Elvis movie, when the movie opens and they're at the Hilton, uh, you see the Enterprise. And that's because right. back, you know, the Hilton had that Star Trek exhibition, uh, you know, the experience. 
uh, right. back in the in the early O's. But also when Elvis is recording the 1968 comeback special, he recorded it at NBC Studios. NBC in 1968 was airing Star Trek in first run, and in in the in the uh, the production booth while they're taping the 68 special in the background. You see a framed poster of Michelle Nichols as Uhura and as Kirk at Spock. And I went, man, that, uh, I mean. I do remember seeing that. Yeah, yeah. But I went, wow, Boss Lerman must be a trekker. (laughs) On September 4th, Texas Instruments filed one of the most important patents in history, which is the patent for the very first single chip microprocessor which is where computers come from, basically. Uh, also on the fourth, Hank Aaron hit its, hit his 709th home run. He's just five short of Babe Ruth at this point. And that is all the news that I have for the week before this aired. But before we jump into the show, Scott, I have to share with you an epiphany that I started to have when we had our converse, our preview conversation about the animated series, which I believe I have now confirmed. You have asked many, many times, what's the first Star Trek episode that got you into the show? And of course, I've never had an answer because I've never been able to remember. But now I'm pretty sure that my first Star Trek episode wasn't an episode of the original series. It must have been an episode of the animated series. I must have seen that first. And here is how I know this, is that when I was a kid, and maybe this is just a little bit too much information, but when I was a kid, Saturday was the day I was allowed to watch TV. TV was restricted throughout the week, but Saturday, all bets were off. And so mapping out my Saturday to maximize my TV enjoyment was like a passion of mine. And I knew every show I was going to watch from when I got up in the morning until The Love Boat or when I was a little older, Fantasy Island, or when I was really older, Saturday Night Live. Like that was the the day, right? And so I went and I looked at the Saturday morning TV schedule in September of 1973. And I looked and I went, well, obviously at 9 a.m. I watched Super Friends. That just went without saying. And then I went, oh, what was the next show? Well, there was uh, My Favorite Martians was probably the next thing I watched at 10 a.m. And then in a choice between Goober and the Ghostbusters, Genie, and Star Trek, the animated series, There is no question in my mind that in 1973, that Star Trek was the next thing I watched. So I am now almost certain that my first episodes of Star Trek were animated. Wow. You know, I I really, because I I have such a, I mean, it's such a vivid memory. Just that's, you know, you've known me for a while now, Steve, you know that I am wired for really specific things like movie release dates and so on. I just have such a vivid memory of the the late fall of 1974 when I saw Mirror Mirror. Uh, you know that was the the episode that fired my phasers for sure. Yeah. But I also was very very diligent with watching cartoons on Saturday mornings, and I know for a fact that I that I, not only did I watch the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Hour, but of course I recorded those Bugs Bunny Roadrunner episodes on my tape recorder. So I know for a fact that I was watching Saturday morning cartoons, but I don't, what I don't have is the memory that a lot of my friends have like you, where they're like the first episode of Star Trek I ever saw was an animated series episode. I know a lot of people who say that a lot of people on our Facebook page has said, yep, I watched, I found the animated series before I even found the original series. I don't have that memory, but I do, what I do know is that when I did finally catch up with the animated series the first episode for me because i do have a vivid memory of of uh, lucian 
of Lucifer mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Magics of Magus Two, which is a which is a favorite of mine. We'll get to that. But uh, but it's funny how so many people from the syndication generation, even though we Star Trek thrived in syndication and got so popular in syndication, and so many of uh, of our enterprisers love Star Trek and syndication, are members of that generation. So many of them are also uh, uh, they they found the animated series before the original series. You know, it just occurred to me, and I know that our audience is listening and going, come on, get into the show, get into the show, why don't you get into the show? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but what just occurred to me is that those things that attract us as kids, as let's say geeky kids to science fiction and superheroes and stuff like that, are not the things necessarily that make those things great. So I was totally watching Lost in Space as a kid. Oh, yeah. Now, I, I haven't gone to watch Lost in Space, and I'm sure never will, because it's not really a very good show. But those science fiction elements I was drawn to as a kid, just like I wa- read tons and tons of Superman comics and Justice League comics from the 70s and 80s, most of which aren't good, you know? But it was the it was the exterior, the surface things, science fiction, superpowers, things like that, that were drawn to me. What makes Star Trek, the original series, uh, enduring are not those things. They're not the things that maybe first drew them, me to them as a kid. They're the ideas and, and the characters and the emotions and relationships and all that stuff. That's what makes it great. And it's interesting, like, you know, the difference between the surface and definitely the surface of the animated series, of course, that sucked me right in. Aliens yeah, sure. and spaceships. And of course, that was the stuff I was into, regardless of the quality that I later came to appreciate in the original series. Um, speaking of which, shall we now finally enter the animated world of Star Trek? Let's go beyond the farthest star. Space, the final frontier. Let's talk, Scott. Let's talk about this opening. What do you think of it? I love the opening. I love the music. I mean, it's it it's it's the original series music, but not really. But it's close enough. And it's it. <coughs> I I think the strength of that opening theme, of that music, like I think it's just as good as the original series series theme song. Like like when I started watching this, I loved hearing. The, you know, space, the final frontier, which, by the way, is the exact same narration track mm. that Shatner, you know, they just lifted that, but they could not lift the music, which is why the new music was done. But I think the new music uh, or then, you know, what was then the new music, the new theme song for the animated series is great. What do you think? I think it's really good. I really like the first half. And I think it's a really interesting kind of lift of the original uh, music. I does definitely get into a certain kind of 70s-ish that so I was like, oh, we're kind of sounding a little Love Boat-ish, you know, <laughs> yeah, as we get into yeah. the second half of the music, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it does definitely date it in a way that the Star Trek music doesn't date it in the 60s for me. But And I also think that the look of the animated Enterprise is really good. I really yes. like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's and we brought this up last week when we were talking with uh, Aaron Harvey and Rich Shepis, the authors of of Star Trek: The Official Guide to the Animated Series, is that the animated Enterprise looks exactly like the original series Enterprise. The same stock shots of the original Enterprise, the original visual effects were used for the animated series. All, the only difference is is that the Enterprise. Is animated, not live action. But I think that is another reason why, of course, for obvious reasons, this feels just like Star Trek. Yep. 
Well, and speaking of feeling like Star Trek, when the show starts, what do we start with? A captain's log. Captain's log. Yes, star date 5221.3. And does that continue to confirm your theories about the star dates? Well, if if you're looking at it as as well, this is the fourth season, then no. But so if it's star date 5221.3, for the time being, this puts this adventure in the fifth year of the five-year mission because the first number of the star date is a five. Well, I think that makes sense then. You know, yep. some time has passed. And what we hear is we're doing, you know, star charting and we have this top-down shot of the bridge of the Enterprise, which was the kind of shot that would have been really, really hard to do in live action, is easier to do. And one of the things we'll see, there are a lot of shots where it's really all just still images. You know, they're they're not really animating them. And obviously that's a, a cost-cutting thing, and we're gonna see that a lot. So so some interesting things. So the the Enterprise is on this mission to to do star charting. And we're returning to the fringe of our galaxy. And this is an episode that is written by Samuel A. Peoples. Uh, yeah. And the the first episode that he wrote, the second pilot, where no man has gone before, has the Enterprise at the fringe of the galaxy. So it's a sort of, you know, you can't come home again feeling when I when I want to watch this again because I was wrapping my head around this, like the way we approach these episodes. And also the Enterprise, the crew is star charting. And I don't right. think, I don't think the Enterprise had done any star charting, true star charting, like actually being out where no man had gone before right. since the Corbomite maneuver. Oh, you know, that's actually a really interesting point. Um, you know, it's so funny thinking about like, well, what does the, what is the enterprise actually supposed to do, considering all the time they're in the midst of a job and end up having to do something else, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then suddenly, just like in a regular episode of Star Trek, the ship is picking up speed and we can't stop it. Stand by to reverse course. Standing by, sir. Reverse course. And we get our first sort of enterprise shake. And it's so funny because it's such a skill that the live action crew had to get really, really good at. And here, all you're doing is you're taking a still and shaking it. Yeah, <laughs> and that, yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. The crew, didn't, um, you know, they didn't have to do anything in the VO booth. That's for sure. Nope. <laughs> I can only describe it as hyper gravity, Captain. More powerful than any we've ever encountered. And what we see in the distance is what looks like a planet, but I guess is like a collapsed star. A dark star. We try full, re full reverse thrust. That's no good. We start a countdown. Again, these are all classic things of Star Trek episodes. The out-of-control Enterprise, the unknown planet, the countdown. And then Kirk makes what I think is a great Kirk choice. Sulu, flank speed ahead. Our only chance is to try to get into orbit around that thing. Aye, aye, Captain. Well, one thing that's interesting is so, so here you have this dark star with high gravity. So the last time the Enterprise experienced a dark star where they had to pull away from it, and it slingshot at the Enterprise back in time to the late That's 1960s. Right. So they're facing a similar situation here where they are approaching a dark star. Of course, I'm referring to Tomorrow is Yesterday, where they messed up history a little bit and had to correct it. But so, so we're returning to the fringe of the galaxy. We are experiencing a, a dark star. A couple of things that had happened in the original series, and these are also things that – also elements of this episode that make it really do feel like Star Trek, except when they show Sulu, they show someone sitting next to Sulu who is yes. most definitely not Chekhov. 
This is a character. We haven't heard him speak yet. We don't know his what his name is yet, but we will come to know that this character's name is Lieutenant Arix. And this episode marks the very first on-screen appearance of a totally non-human member of the Enterprise. He didn't have any dialogue in this particular episode, but he will. But he had three arms and three legs. And background info that was sent to fans from Gene Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana said that Arix was one of the best navigators in Starfleet. And he was Chekhov's instructor at the Academy. So there's actually background information on Arix. That's really cool. And I wish we had had more of that. I also think I love his head design. I think it's really, really cool. I think the three arm thing is definitely an idea that came from writers, not from designers, because I don't think it works that well. And part of why it doesn't work so well is having him in the gold shirt where the third arm coming out of the middle of his chest is exactly the same color in animation. I didn't even notice he had three arms probably for a long time. It's really hard to see. So the design, it's one of those like, oh, yeah, he's got three arms. But it's it feels it's it's not a design that works that great. Yeah, you're right. One thing about the approach and going into orbit is because the shots are more varied because it's animation. I found it much more visually satisfying, I think, than a similar sequence would have been in the original series with the original effects. With the original effects. Right. You're right. If his pull is this strong, Jim, how do we get out of orbit? And it's funny that you just mentioned the slingshot effect, because that's what Kirk now asks Spock if he can do. Slingshot effect, Mr. Spock? Do we have enough power? I'll need some time for the computations, Captain. One thing I was noticed, I was listening to the voice performances. And the one thing that, I, that really jumped out at me right away is I think Nimoy, at least in this episode, is very stiff. Is And it's a weird thing. And, and this is what I was thinking about it, is that, and, you know, acting for animation is not like... Live action acting. You're sitting exactly. in a booth with a microphone. It's mm-hmm. very, very, you're doing the same line over and over again. It's very, dis- can feel very disconnected. And I remember something that you said about how Nimoy felt when Shatner replaced Jeffrey Hunter is that he had something to play off of because Shatner had so much energy, it helped his performance. And that is what I feel like maybe is missing is now he's in this booth and he does, and it's, he's not moving his body around. He's not acting against people in the same way because his, his whole performance throughout this episode, at least feels very restrained to me. I, I, I agree with you. I definitely picked up a, a difference in Nimoy's vocal, um, I guess the word is uh, inflection uh, between this episode and and the more recent episodes of the third season that we saw. And I think that is a great point. I think you're absolutely right. You know, when he's standing there with, with William Shatner or DeForest Kelly, you know, he's, they're able to elevate each other to, to bounce off each other. But when you're sitting in a stiff, uh, cramped little VO booth, you don't have that. And I think for the same reason, that's why I noticed that I, I noticed more of a difference with Beyond the Farthest Star in Shatner's you know vocal yep. performance than Nimoy's. Nimoy's I felt like still sounded very much like Spock, and you know he was saying things that he would say, and it sounded like he would say them in the original series. Whereas Shatner's dramatic pauses, which I like because I think that's very much what makes William Shatner Captain Kirk. He's I feel like the same thing, you know, you're not yeah. on the set, you're not, you're the actors. I mean, they recorded these first three episodes together, but they weren't all in the VO booth at the same time. So that's why I think the vocal, uh, the sort of sonic uh, boom of their performance is not going to be the same. 
It's also the material, and we'll get into that as we go, is there's not as much opportunity for emotional for emotional range in this mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. One person, by the way, who I think the opposite is true of, by, though, is Uhura. I'm getting that radio sound again, sir. Nine seconds right ascension from galactic plane. Dead ahead and closing fast. I think Nichelle Nichols has more vocal energy, and maybe it's because she's a singer and a performer, and t- talking to a microphone isn't as weird for her, but she seems more... Uh, energized, I think. Did you also get like for for Uhura? I agree with you. Like, I felt like there was a there was a an energy to her performance. There yeah, was that's what ur- I mean. There yeah. was an urgency, and also, did you notice kind of a little bit of an accent? It's her voice sounded a bit different. Yes, I I agree. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we see something on screen, and we pull up alongside this kind of alien looking web. It feels much more organic than it feels like a starship. So this is a 300 million year old alien sh- starship that was drawn by storyboard artist Bob Klein. It was his first assignment when he first joined the animated series. Mm. And his original drawings, you know, which which can be found in this uh, this book uh, that uh, these guys wrote, uh, the official guide to the animated series, the original drawings by Bob Klein made this derelict starship look like a derelict federation starship Mm. but when you know when you know roddenberry saw the drawings he said no no i want it to be weirder and more alien so all the preliminary sketches that were done by the storyboard artists were forwarded to roddenberry by uh animated series art director don christensen and producer norm prescott but uh when you look in this book and you see the original design for the Devil ship, it was a, it was a starship. But then, hmm. no, 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 we want it to be 300 million years old. And Bob Klein, the storyboard artist, actually said about sort of the feedback he was getting, he said, I had no idea the Devil ship wasn't supposed to be a Federation ship. I don't think the script was finished at that point. I just kept getting indication that it was not weird enough. Well, and again, this is a thing they could never have built this ship as a model in the original series. It would have been hugely expensive, and and I don't even know how they would have gone about doing it. Right. Uh, one other thing I'll say is like, so I don't work in animation. I've written a few animation scripts uh, for a show that never came out, by the way. Uh, but I do have a <laughs> bunch of buddies who work in animation, and I I don't know that this is how this worked in uh, for the animated series. And maybe you correct me, but. In general, they're different departments for different jobs. So you'll have character designers, and they're designing all the characters. You'll have storyboard artists that are going through and moving those characters around and setting up all the shots. And then you'll have background artists who will design all the backgrounds. And you'll have prop artists who are designing all the handheld stuff. And those things are all happening happening separately, and then they all get put together. So it's a very – this is why we said it's a very spread out process. I don't know if that's exactly how that worked on the animated series. Uh-huh, but. Uh-huh. It, but it sounds it's probably something like that. That ship is dead. Temperature is absolute zero. There's no thermal reading to support life aboard her, and no energy store to send radio messages. Nothing except a slight magnetic flux reading, which could be normal for the ship's metal. All right, let me stop it right there. Yeah. A slight magnetic flux reading. What kid on a Saturday morning is going to get that? It's so, it's fun. It's so funny that you say that because I I think when we were kids, did you ever have your comic books confiscated by like a teacher? I had my comic books confiscated by my father because I failed behavior in French class in seventh what? grade. How dare he? 
Yeah. <laughs> do, do you rem- do you remember what comic book it was? Oh, it was my whole my whole collection that I had up to that point of the Amazing Spider-Man and Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. Wow. My dad took off my he took my whole comic book collection away because I got a bad report in behavior. So I had in when I was in kindergarten, exactly probably the time that I started maybe watched the animated series, I had a comic book confiscated that was a four-star spectacular that was my favorite comic book. The teacher never returned it. And I found I remember finding that comic book in my 20s and it and almost crying because I found found this comic book. Oh my goodness. In a comic wow. book store. I mean, not the same issue edition, of course, but but I found that version. It is sitting over there behind me right now. <sighs> anyway, the reason I bring it up is the 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 knock on comic books and science fiction was it was dumb stuff. And what I knew even as a kid was I was reading about dimensions and tesseracts and time travel and, you know, lasers and all this stuff is that it wasn't dumb stuff. And the fact that we were watching this or that I was at least watching this at five years old, probably that's part. That's why smart people were actually being drawn to comic books and science fiction and stuff like that, because it didn't talk down to us, you know? Yep. Yep. (laughs) And then we hear what you mentioned before, that this ship has been in orbit for more than 300 million years. Before life even emerged on Earth, from which Dr. McCoy responds, Barely an instant in eternity, Jim. This is the kind of dialogue that I go, you know what? If you're going to do an animated series and you're not going to do live action, this is as good as it's going to get because you're having really good writing here and you're having the original actors voice this dialogue. Except it is actually incorrect because life started on Earth like three billion plus years ago. (laughs) It was a lot longer, but, but still, I agree with you about the lines. (laughs) <laughs> um again it's it's so funny because i just am going like yeah this is star trek because what does kirk decide we'll board her mr spock scotty bones you'll come with us we'll need life support belts ah the life support belts does this remind you of a conversation that we had with judy burns during the tholian web yes it absolutely does <laughs> so an early idea discussed but rejected for the tholian web was that the Enterprise crew would have life support belts. It was a jettison for the for the original series, but it used for the animated series. So that did away with those bulky spacesuits that people either love or hate that we saw in the Tholian web, and we saw again for a split second in Whom Gods Destroy uh, when they killed Marta, which was really, really brutal. But I... Kind of dig the uh, life support belts. I think it's really cool. What do you think? I think it's a great solution to a problem that we always face in science fiction space shows, which is how do we deal with this without having big bulky suits and blocking people's faces? I think this is a perfect solution. I like it a lot. Yep. Um, and they beam down to the ship, and I was like, yeah, and they're they're using the transporter room, and this all feels like Star Trek. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> on the ship, we hear the hexagonal shape of the windows suggests a similarity to natural insect designs of Earth, the honeycombs of bees. Do you know there's now a whole branch of engineering that's devoted to trying to learn how to build better stuff by looking at nature? Like, this is a huge movement today, and that's exactly what they're talking about in this episode. So that, that, like so many elements of Star Trek, makes this ahead of its time. Would you look at this now? This metal, it isn't cast or rolled. It was drawn into filaments and spun. Like a spider spins his web. I like the design of all of this. I think it looks really cool. 
I'll tell you what else I like. Uh, first of all, the design does look really cool. Design that you would not be able to do for a live action episode. So they're already taking advantage of this new medium to to apply it to Star Trek. That must have been like like kids in a candy store. Like, oh, we can totally. we can do a lot of stuff here. But also, again, just how uh, you like you pointed out where Kirk is like, we're going to board her. I mean, like it's almost like a line that was lifted when Kirk says we're going to board the constellation and the doomsday machine. Yeah. And he felt like you felt so in character, the way that, that Spock is describing, uh, you know, you using this dialogue that, that really must've gone over little kids heads at that time, if they were even watching at that point. And then you have Scotty kind of geeking out over the design of this yeah. alien ship. I mean, like when you hear Scott, uh, Scotty look at the, uh, the alien ship at the beginning of Spock's brain, like, like Scotty really, like, I love when he like really sort of geeks out over the design of a ship and he goes, Oh, isn't she a beauty? Um, and that's what he's doing here. He's, he's really like, like excited about this, yep. this new design. This is, I mean, you, you've already said it, but this is the advantage of having writers from the original series, like that care about these characters. Yep. Every pod, they've all been burst open. I, from the inside, from the looks of them. Must have been some accident to get almost every pod. Accidents seldom have such system, Dr. McCoy. I believe we must consider the alternative possibility that the crew of this ship destroyed her themselves. And that is the end of Act One. So this is a new structure for Star Trek. We have no teaser, right? Right. And we're and we're going to have a three-act structure instead of a four-act structure. That's really interesting. I, and you know what? I, like, when... When I was watching this episode, when I was watching Beyond the Farthest Star and taking my notes, even though I'd seen the episode before, because we just did this episode by episode, deep dive, going in production order, you know, we took a bit of a break towards the end of the year and now we're back doing this. Like this first episode of the animated series, like I actually felt excited and I also felt like because I missed doing these deep dives these last few weeks. I was so excited to do this again. I was sitting there taking my notes and I was doing all the research and coming up with all this trivia about the episode. And I'm like, like I actually felt like I know how it must have felt for fans of the original series to have finally beginning brand new Star Trek after waiting all those, those uh, you know, four years since the end of the original series. It's so funny thinking about it now, how short, short a time that is. Because I'm older and time goes so much faster. And I'm like, oh, so that was... It was as if in 2019, Star Trek had ended and it just started up now as the animated series. You know, it's, yeah. not, it's not actually that amount, long amount of time. We come back in Act 2 and after another Captain's Log. All right, lock on us with the transporter and be ready to transport. We're going inside. And we go inside and we see these tentacle things. And again, all these kinds of things that would have been really hard to build in reality. And, and one of the things I notice is one of the coolest things that they can now do is scale. Because you have this super wide shot with just tiny little figures silhouetted. That's really neat. It is really neat. The other thing that's really neat to me is when Kirk flips open his communicator and says, Kirk to Enterprise. Enterprise, Lieutenant Uhura here. That's Star Trek. Like, like, like I smiled. Like, it's so cool hearing, watching an animated version of this, but hearing William Shatner and Nichelle Nichols say these lines. 
And what we hear about the ship is that the whole ship is designed to absorb energy. So I wanted to ask you is what's happening that the ship was dormant until the Enterprise showed up. And now that their energy is there, it's starting to wake up. Is that what's going on? That's sort of what it seems like. And this is a ship that's absorbing energy. And it's a ship that kind of for a moment made me think of the planet killer from the doomsday Mm. machine, which absorbed energy from the rubble of planets that it destroyed. Mm. And just like the doomsday machine, as this episode project uh, progresses, there turns into a ticking clock that builds suspense and the stakes just keep getting higher and higher, just like the very best of the original series. So you know how we were talking before about Nimoy's performance and Shatner's performance and how they felt a little restrained? You know whose performance sounds to me exactly the same, no change whatsoever, is DeForest Kelly. Absolutely agree. For sure. He absolutely sounds, of of the three, the big three, his, his uh, voiceover performance sounds the least different from the original series. It gives me the creeps. I feel like something's watching us. I go. That's McCoy. Like, uh, just sounds exactly like him. And then we have what I'll call our first sort of moment of interpersonal conflict with Spock saying that's just... Physiological symptom of latent primal superstition. The fear of primitive people confronting something unknown to them. Again, I I, and I'll stop saying this soon, but it feels like Star Trek. Yep, for sure. (laughs) Um, There's another nice shot looking through the whole ship, and we come up to a big door, and Spock shoots something to open the door. And then we have this, again, it's the scale, it's the use of one-point perspective that as they go through this deep hallway, all stuff they couldn't really do in the original series. And then the door closes, and music hits, and they react. Tricorder analysis, Mr. Spock. There seems like a lot of stuff happening, but I don't really think anything much is actually happening. (laughs) That was kind of my reaction to this (laughs) One thing they find out is that we've lost contact with the Enterprise. Scotty goes, we can cut our way out of here. And once again, the phasers don't work. (laughs) (laughs) The phasers always don't work at the most convenient times. (laughs) And then the same music starts up again. I don't know if this is the second or the third time that it starts up. I don't know how many times this same piece of music is going to play just in this first episode. But I can tell you right now, Scott. Yes. This music cue is going to irritate the hell out of me as we go <laughs> yeah. on for the next 22 episodes. Sure. And, and, and I want to just say something about it, just in terms of film production, is music absolutely is magical. It can take a scene that is doesn't feel like much at all and make it scary or thrilling or exciting or romantic. It, it, it has huge power, but it has to be the right music. And even if this is a good music cue, the dun 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 yeah uh-huh even if it's even if we like that you like that music cue it's not going to magically make scenes that aren't exciting exciting and the more often you use it the worse it gets and they use this particular cue i could remember as soon as it started playing i remembered it from the last time i watched the animated series i'm like oh right yeah oh yeah i agree with you i agree yeah there wasn't a whole lot of music to the animated series so they did reuse so many music cues um, sometimes multiple times in the same episode and you're right it does get like very very redundant which which obviously they reuse music cues in the original series but they didn't reuse them quite as often and they use them much more intelligently Mm -hmm. in ways Mm -hmm. that really work rather than hey let's just throw that music cue on it again they find the control center of the starship 
And they what they figure out is it seems like something was jury rigged to build a shield to keep something in this room. But nothing, no form of life could survive 300 million years. Quite right, Mr. Scott. No known form of life. Again, Star Trek. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then we start to hear a voice and this face appears on a monitor, an alien face speaking some alien language. So what's interesting is this is a message from 300 million years ago. And in some ways, it kind of made me think of that which survives, where oh. Lysira sends this message at the very end, which was basically a warning that, you know, the our entire race was killed by a virus and so on and so on. But that's just another another element that even though it feels kind of derivative of an original series episode, in, in this case, I think it's a good thing that you're leaning into a trope that was used by the original series because it's making the anima- the animated series feel like Star Trek. I 100% agree. I like I think, you know, we obviously talked a lot about ideas that got repeated too much, but I think there's something very important that they had to do with this first episode to make all those Star Trek fans who were waiting for it feel good feels absolutely yep yeah. agree completely rather than carry this malevolent life form to other worlds we have decided to destroy our own ship and then starts to say to something else and then there's an explosion uh and all this machinery starts breaking and they manage to beam away back to the enterprise uh and we hear this british voice located them right after that explosion mr sulu this british voice is lieutenant kyle but it is not voiced by John Winston, who played Lieutenant Kyle in the original series. The voice for this version, this animated version of Lieutenant Kyle, is none other than James Doohan, who was very, very busy doing a lot of the voices on the animated series. But having said that, Lieutenant Kyle was the only subsidiary original series Enterprise crew member to return for the animated series. He had darker hair, But if you notice, he also had a mustache. And Mm -hmm. when we see Lieutenant Kyle for his brief appearance on the Starship Reliant in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, he not only has a mustache, he has a Van Dyke growing out. So maybe he was (laughs) sort of like getting that going. But what's interesting is that when everything is blowing up on the alien ship and the landing party beams back to the Enterprise in the nick of time, again, there's a lot going on in this episode that I never – really gave credit to until looking at it with this different set of eyes. But there is a lot going on here and they're doing a lot that feels a whole lot like Star Trek. And I just had a smile on my face from ear to ear rewatching Beyond the Farthest Star. Captain, something beamed aboard with you. Some kind of green glob that turns into like a green gas. Kirk runs over to the console and by the way the running shots is another one that's just like that is it's really weird and they're going to reuse that particular running position a lot um uh but i love that he pushes kyle out of the way to get to the consoles but it's no good that green gas whatever it is flies up into the vents and disappears so on one hand i'm thinking of the uh cloud vampire from obsession and then uh, the way this entity, this cloud, infiltrates the computers of the Enterprise and starts laughing. Now, what does that sound like, Steve Morris? How about uh, Wolf in the Fold? Reject, reject, reject. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> uh, and that brings us to the end of Act Two, 
We're now into act three, the final act of the show. By the way, in this top-down shot of the bridge, which I'm assuming is just the same still that we've seen before, Uhura is leaning back in this really weird way. Um, top-downs, I know from having so many artist friends, are, re are really hard to draw because mm -hmm. we don't generally see the world from that direction. And we see this weird, and I was just going to ask you, we see this thing lower from the ceiling. What is that? Yes, that thing lowering from the ceiling is called the automatic bridge defense system. This is the oh. only time we will see or hear about the automatic bridge defense system. We never saw it in the original series. Uh, that would have come in really handy while Beale and Lokai were on the bridge in Let That Be yeah. OS Battlefield. It would have come in really handy at the beginning of Spock's brain before the alien stole Spock's brain. So, you know, for the purpose of this episode, it was used, never used again. Good idea, though. And I mean, yeah. I mean, the bridge should have a defense system. I mean, you know, so should auxiliary control. There are a lot of there are a lot of things that I think they could work on. Maybe if, if there were ever a later version of an Enterprise, sure. But w one thing they talk about is, look, the other ship destroyed itself. Maybe we should get to do that. So Kirk says to Scotty, "Take two of your men and arm the self-destruct device in the engineering core." Aye, sir. And I'm like, don't you have self-destruct stuff right on the bridge? Well, okay, so. The start date for this episode was 5221.3, which makes it take place before the events of Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. So maybe oh. the uh, automatic self-destruct sequence after the events of Beyond the Farthest Star, maybe <clears throat> Kirk said, you know what? We really should have everything for self-destruct on the, on the bridge just to be safe. I'm totally going with you on this theory. I think that's exactly what happened. Um, <laughs> but then after they leave, we hear that we've lost uh, life support on decks five and six. And Kirk and Spock head down to um, engineering again with this weird running shots that I don't like. I think the engineering design is cool. I think they did a nice job, you know, building it out and making it more complex. Then they, they did that because they could, because now we're in animation. We don't have the constraints of an actual set. Yep. And Scotty is trapped under something. And we hear, which is also interesting. The force field of his belt won't hold that weight for long, Jim. So apparently it's not just that it can, it does life support. It actually is like a force field. That's very interesting. Very interesting. All right. Get the cutter beams on that hatch. Move. Yes, sir. And it, it frees Scotty. He gets up. And then we hear that the ship's phaser banks are activated. The alien starship is destroyed. So we show up back on the bridge. Can you rig a low-frequency shield like the one on the alien ship on our navigation console? It would have a very small field. Do it. They've activated this little shield around the navigation panel. Jim, you don't think that's going to help us. Whatever that thing is, it survived millennia in a dead hawk. All it has to do here is outlast us and just take over. And Kirk, and again, this made me think of, by any other name, says... It must be held by the magnetic force of the dead star. And it needs a starship to break free and a crew to man it. It also made me think of the entity being held by the force of a dead star, and it needs a starship to break three. What does that remind you of? Is it Star Trek V? Star Trek V. What does God want with the starship? You are correct, Captain James D. Kirk. That voice? You guessed it. James doing. You will now remove the static shield from the navigation console, Captain James T. Kirk. You have shut down life support systems and endangered members of my crew. Restore those systems first. You will obey me. And if I refuse. So now this is the bridge defense system that's hitting Kirk with this beam? Yep. Because mm -hmm. ah, the uh, that... alien entity is is uh, controlling that. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And Spock 
does that same run pose and mm-hmm. he gets knocked down and Kirk and I don't understand this. Kirk takes off his belt and puts it on the navigation consult. I don't understand that either. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on. And then he dives out of the way, doing a cool Captain Kirk roll, which the beam misses. And then Kirk says in, to Scott, Install the auxiliary controls. Aye, Captain. Again, I don't understand exactly what's going on here. And then we get a whole bunch of techno babble. It is a magnetic organism without mass, but capable of symbiotic relationship with a host body. And I, you know, and this is, as we said before in the original series, one of the things the original series got right that later Star Trek, I believe, gets wrong is substituting a whole bunch of technical stuff that we don't understand for conflicts and solutions to those conflicts that we can understand, even if the tech is science fiction. Right. And this is, you know, it's just rambling on. And this is where I go, you know, yes, Nimoy and Shatner seem restrained and kind of stiff, but you have to say these lines that don't really mean much. They have no emotional, there's no beat work an actor can do. Yep. They're just saying expositional lines about technical stuff that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. A slingshot effect to yank us out of orbit. Can you compute it in your mind? If we try to use ship's computers, the alien will know. Smart. Well, and Spock can compute it in his mind because he's already done it twice. Yep. He did it in Tomorrow's Yesterday, and he did it in Assignment Earth. Yep. that's He's smart, that Spock guy. Yep. He, 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 um, he, he memorized it. I, I do like this moment. It's one of the more human moments in the whole show because Sc- Spock says he's going to need Scotty and Kirk says to the alien, The engineer will need aid from my first officer to complete repairs. Is that permitted? Pause. I guess it is. That, <laughs> yeah. That, that's like a joke. Like it like it has some humanness to it. Like you, like you could see you could see Shatner if this was live yeah. action Shatner. You could see that you could see how Shatner would would express yeah. that. Uh-huh. And the alien gives some coordinates that they should head to, which Sulu says is the heart of the galaxy. This symbiote can reproduce itself by mitosis and take over every starship we encounter. It can control computer centers, whole planets. So now we're like wrestling with this is why the other ship blew itself up. And this is why. And they're basically saying to Kirk, dude, if you let this go back to our galaxy, it could destroy everything. So so, so we're seeing the, the exact kind of conflict, the threat of a conflict that where the Enterprise is now dealing with this entity. But if it goes back to the heart of our galaxy, it's going to present an even bigger threat and and put millions billions of lives at stake that yep. is the stakes getting higher building to the kind of threat that the doomsday machine did so effectively and and in this moment where we're here because what they're setting up is that if we don't do this right the whole galaxy is going to be destroyed in the original series we would have actually had that conversation is that mccoy would have come up and said jim do you realize what we're risking by doing this right you know Mm -hmm. maybe we should just destroy the ship right now you know that that would be the because i think and and i think this just kind of points to what is missing a little bit from this episode is choice is the sense of i have a moral dilemma what do i what is the right choice right that's kind of missing because it's so tight and compressed good point that was it did you notice at this moment as we're uh, taking over control of the ship and about to execute this plan that the music got what I will say is a little funky? Sure. It was the early 70s. It's we're moving 70s. in that direction. Yep. 
<laughs> um, and there's kind of a cool shot of the Enterprise moving forward. And then we're dropping out of orbit. So instead of heading off in the direction that this alien wants us to go, we're heading straight into the dead sun. Right. And the alien starts freaking out. Apply full power. Obey me. And he hits Kirk with a beam. And the alien is screaming and finally leaves the ship. So this is interesting. So so when we had Regic on the Enterprise in, into the computers, you know, Regic was just pure evil. But this alien being, there is there's there's a, a a quality about this alien being that that it's been trapped for so long and it needs the enterprise to to get away and it's been so lonely for all this time and like you kind of feel bad for it yeah. like kind of like the way you feel bad for Charlie Evans yeah. in Charlie X you have another an excellent element of the original series that is applied to the animated series, and that is the misunderstood antagonist, that yep. you feel remorse for this antagonist because it's so lonely and desperate. It's That's exactly what's going on, and it also shows this is the, the weakness of having you know a 23-minute episode because you can't really feel that much, you know? Right. We don't really get to know this alien the way we get to know Charlie Evans. But it does definitely have this sad kind of moment at the end with it going. Which is sad. It is sad. But they never tried to talk, you know, like had this been a full episode of Star Trek, they would have tried to talk to the alien. Right, that's a right. classic start. You know, we would have had more time to do some of that stuff. Yeah, you would but, have. You would have had. You would have had the the uh, uh, moment where you know Kirk is trying to save the Enterprise, but then at just the right moment, he is like basically showing compassion. That compassion right. that we talked about, you know, in episodes like Charlie X or or even Arena, where or Balance of Terror, where he reverses course and wants to help. And you don't have that moment in Beyond the Farthest Star because you don't have time to have that moment because right. it's a much, much shorter animated episode. I'll be curious to see as we go along if they get better at striking that balance because this is right at the beginning. You know, it might take them a little while to get in the rhythm of how do you bring some of that stuff in. Um, although I also know that I'm pretty sure what many people argue as the finest episode of the animated series is next. So maybe it didn't take them too much time at all. And just yeah. to be real clear, what they did, which again, I think is a cool Kirk move, is they scared the entity by accelerating straight for the planet, making the alien think they were going to crash when in fact they were just building up speed for their slingshot. Exactly. That's a cool, cool Kirk move. I like it. Yep, it's um, a cool Kirk move for sure. And then we have this sort of continuing moment at the end, which is the final log entry. Resuming outward course beyond the farthest star of our galaxy. Mission, star charting. So they're back to the star charting, and they ran out of time. They had to wrap this episode up. It's only 24 minutes and 10 seconds long before. that. That's actually with the credits. And uh, that brings us to the end of Beyond the Farthest Star. So even though this is animated... We still do have recollections and and quotes from 
from people who worked on it. Dorothy Fontana, who was the associate producer and story editor for the animated series, said that Beyond the Farthest Star was a very good episode, and it was one of our favorite episodes of the animated series. And Samuel A. Peoples, the writer of this episode, and of course, where no man has gone before, said, Dorothy Fontana called and said, Gene suggested that since you had done the pilot for the original Star Trek, maybe you'd like to do the pilot for the animated Star Trek. And that's what I did. As far as the inspiration for the story, I don't have the vaguest idea. It seems to me that I was trying to say that it would be interesting if there was a spaceship which was actually a living creature. It's alive, but it is used to go from one planet to another. So, Steve Morris... What did you think of this episode after this rewatch and after this conversation? I like it. I don't love it. It's, you know, what's weird about it is all of the things we brought up make it Star Trek. There are elements that we could name dozens of other episodes that they relate to. The characters are there. It feels like Star Trek. There's not much heart to it. There's not many ideas in it, you know. It's it's like it's like you just they kind of pulled out the stuff that makes me adore Star Trek while maintaining all of the pieces of Star Trek. Yeah. So that that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there's definitely a whole lot to it that makes it feel like Star Trek, but it feels more stitched together because you don't have enough enough time to really get into deeper character moments. Of course, it's also an animated show and you're missing like that key moment at the end where there's just that that remorse of feeling bad at having to leave the alien. Uh, wish we could have done more for it, Mr. Spock. You know, have warp one, Mr. Sulu, you know, that kind of thing. I, I mean, overall, overall, I never really gave much thought to Beyond the Farthest Star, but I have a much, much deeper appreciation for it. I even have what you would say a love for Beyond the Farthest Star because of its place in Star Trek history as the first episode of the animated series, an episode where they really came very, very close to making it a classic episode of Star Trek, despite the constraints of animation, the star, despite the constraints of a, of a running time that was basically chopped right in half. But I think this episode works exceptionally well is an episode where they are literally uh, exploring a strange new world and they are at the edge of the galaxy, like like coming full circle from the very first pilot to feature James, well, R. Kirk at the time, now T. Kirk. And I think this is a great introduction to the animated series. The best will be yet to come possibly with the next episode. Maybe we'll have to see as we go along with our deep dives through the animated series. But I think we're off to a great start of the animated series voyages here on Enterprise Incidents. And if you want to contact us, everything has remained exactly the same into the animated series. You can follow us on Facebook. Just do a search for Enterprise Incidents. On Twitter, it's Enter Incidents. On Instagram, it's Enterprise Incidents. And of course, if you haven't already, if you said, you know what? I was never really an original series fan. I don't need to subscribe to this dumb podcast, but I love the animated series. Well, now's your chance to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or YouTube, where you get to at least look at a nice still from the show while you listen to our beautiful voices you can also support the show on anchor by going right into the show notes right at the top there's a link you can go to anchor and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month as much as 9.99 a month 
And you can find me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you want to listen to my other podcast, the cinephiles, we are about to jump into probably two months exploration of the director, Quentin Tarantino. Scott, how would people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. And uh, really, if you could support us by making a very generous donation, very little generous donation, we are great, great, greatly appreciative of that. You know, we love doing enterprise incidents and we are grateful for any bit of support that you can give us. And make sure after listening to this, now that we're getting into the animated series, write a review of Enterprise Incidents on Apple Podcasts. Rate us, rate Enterprise Incidents on Apple Podcasts. As soon as you're done listening to this whole spiel, head over, head back over to Apple Podcasts and rate us and write a review. We really appreciate your reviews and we are grateful to have you join us here on Enterprise Incidents. Make sure you share Enterprise Incidents on your social media platforms, especially now that we are taking a deep dive into the animated series, which is a series that people know less about than the original series or any of the other shows that follow. So hopefully you'll learn a whole lot about the animated series while we are also learning a whole lot about the animated series. Coming up next on Enterprise Incidents, we are going to take a deep dive into what is commonly regarded as the very finest episode of the animated series, an episode that would have made a damn fine live action episode of the original series if it ever happened. But we are excited to take a deep dive into Yesteryear, written by DC Fontana. That's going to be a great conversation. So join us on Enterprise Incidents next time. And until then, keep going boldly.